Welcome to Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, coming to you from our podcast studios in Rockville. Today I'm speaking with Will Jawando, who is a Democrat on the Montgomery County Council. Mr. Jawando lives in Silver Spring. He is in his first term, having been elected in November using the Public Election Fund. Now he serves on the Council's Education and Culture Committee and the Planning Committee. Two pretty cherry sites for a freshman councilman, I would think. Yeah, good committees. Planning, housing, economic development does a lot of the work of the council, so I'm excited. And education is something I care about, so I'm happy to be there, too. Before he got his job in Rockville, he worked in Capitol Hill and in the Obama administration. Correct. Yes, yeah. And I'd love to do a few bullet points from the rest of his life, but uh, it, they're hard to pick because uh, you've had <laughs> quite a career. I direct anyone listening to read his bio at willjuando.com. The one thing I will point out that he and his wife have a new son, born about a week ago, and you already have three daughters. Yes. We're very happy. Thank you, and thank you. It's great to be here, and congrats on your fifth episode. Okay. The number one issue on people's minds today is the uh, federal government shutdown or its impending ending, which at least we just found that out. This is being recorded within hours of Mr. Trump's uh, speech. So you're having a resource fair. This will be on the day after we're recording this in Silver Spring, where furloughed workers can learn about the help that's available from county agencies, utilities, and nonprofits. Even though the president has promised to get paychecks out right away, these people still need these services. Correct? They do. They do. Well, one, a couple of things. One, you have to know we're dealing with a president who doesn't always do what he says he's going to do or, or say what he means or means what he says. So I think people are going to need help. And even if we do hopefully get this quick resolution in the three-week extension, we could be facing another shutdown in three weeks if there's not an agreement on this ridiculous border wall. And even if we do, folks are going to need help catching up because we're talking about the second paycheck, 35 days, longest government shutdown ever. People are behind on bills. They've had to need assistance from utilities and other things. So we're still going to have this resource fair because I think there's still going to be need for the next several weeks at a minimum. Do you get the sense that these organizations were never meant to handle this influx of need? And will they be able to bounce back once the shutdown's fully over? It's something that we're concerned about. Uh, I know uh, some of my colleagues addressed this issue in a Health and Human Services Committee yesterday, and we've been discussing it internally about how do we make sure that our great nonprofits, who are the safety net for a lot of our folks in need that have had this huge influx, how do we make sure that their coffers are not dried up and emptied for what we still have a long winter ahead, as if you think about homelessness and food need and those types of things. So I think we're going to be looking at, is there some things we need to do in the interim, even in this budget, maybe, as coming up, or as we head into the first budget of my term to make sure that those nonprofits have what they need to do the services, the critical services that they provide. So it's a, it's an issue. It's something I'm worried about. I think a lot of people are worried about it around the country, particularly in this region where we have such a high number of federal workers and contractors. And you talk about the first budget that you're going to be a part of. As we speak, Mark Elrich's online budget tool says he's $105 million in the hole. So there's probably not going to be a whole lot of money to help these nonprofits and these other agencies that are built to help these people. Yeah, you know, I think we're just working through the savings plan, the $41 million, and I know that tool is up and being updated. But the good thing is the council has the budget authority and we'll work with the county executive to come up with a, a hopefully a strong budget that protects our safety net, but also is fiscally responsible. So we'll have to go through that whole process. And, and I think it's too early to say what we will or won't be able to do. But I'm hopeful that's one of the many, many things I'll be looking at, I think, along with other of my colleagues on the council is how do we make sure that those nonprofits have what they need? So we'll see what we can do. It's, it's a tough fiscal environment, but it's something that I think 
is important that we need to look at. Well, how will the county recover, I guess, is another question, because the furloughed employees will get money, you know, and it'll be taxed and they'll be able to pay their property tax bills and and, and their income tax. And their income tax. Yeah. Well, you know, that goes to the state, I guess. And then, then we get it later. It. Yeah. Right. But it seems as though that there's there's all this contractors who probably aren't going to get paid or might not get paid. It just seems like things are not in the best place no matter how you look at it. It's certainly a concern. I'm not sure of the current outlines of this deal, whether the contractors were discussing. I haven't read up. I know this is happening in real time, but I know Senator Van Hollen, I had spoken to him about an effort he was working on along with others to make sure that we did reimburse contractors. That's never happened before, and it's a little different because a lot of the contractors haven't been working as opposed to people who have been working and not getting paid. But I, I still think the need is urgent enough that I hope that's something that the federal government will consider. Because like you, as you mentioned, it has downstream effects. You know, how are people going to not only be able to take care of what they need to take care of here, the hundreds of thousands of federal contractors, but also to our economy here. They're not out shopping in stores. They're not paying their bills. So it has serious impacts. And that's why we need to make sure that the government stays open. It's going to be a challenge, but I think I'm hopeful that we can meet that challenge. The reason we asked uh, Mr. Juwando on is a piece of legislation he introduced a a week or so ago called the Law Enforcement Trust and Transparency Act. I'll let you describe it. Sure. Yeah. And introduced this actually on Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And the bill is named the Law Enforcement Trust and Transparency Act or the LED Act. And it really is aimed at addressing what has been a pervasive problem in our country, uh, community trust with with the police. Uh, In the case of the unfortunate incident of a police-involved death, shooting, death in custody. It does two things. One, when one of these unfortunate incidents occurs, it requires that an independent investigation take place. Currently, Montgomery County police investigate their colleagues involved in the death of a resident in Montgomery County. This bill would change that and and would require the executive to form a relationship with a state, federal, or other local law enforcement entity that would then come in and conduct that investigation. Uh, That's important because we want to remove any opportunity for bias or any sort of malfeasance and also the perception, equally important, the perception of bias, because that's where you get into public after seeing all these recordings time and time again. We know disproportionately people of color, African-American men in particular, are shot and killed at higher rates than any other demographic. And so we had one of those happen in the unfortunate case of unarmed man, Robert White, being killed about seven months ago in Silver Spring. And so in these cases, when they happen, you need to make sure that people have confidence in the law enforcement. We have a great law enforcement agency, but creating some independence between the investigation, I think, is a national best practice. Uh, was something that President Obama talked about in the 21st Century Policing Task Force recommendations. So the first thing would be requiring an investigation. The second would that if criminal charges are not filed, and that's a decision of the state's attorney, currently we have an arrangement with Howard County State's Attorney to evaluate and make that call on our behalf. And if the decision is made not to file criminal charges or convene a grand jury, there would need to be a full public report outlining why. Again, transparency being key if one of these deaths happens, why did it happen? Why were charges not filed? And that needs to be an open and transparent process. So currently, neither one of those things happen right now. And this would be a change in our policy, but I think a good one. And I was very happy uh, to, I gave some remarks when I, when I introduced it and all of my colleagues actually co-sponsored. So it's the prospects look pretty good, but we're having a public hearing on March 5th. We'll hear from the community members about it. And then hopefully shortly after that, we'll have a public safety committee hearing. And I hope that we can pass this sometime in March. 
Okay, so the shooting of Robert White on June 11th, I guess, is, is obviously the, um, the impetus behind this, but there's been three other shootings since then. What have you learned about any of those four shootings that, that give you pause about the police department? Well, as I said, we have a professional and a very good police department, but no one is perfect. And it's more that this is a preventative measure so that when these unfortunate incidences happen, when a death happens and a member of our police force is involved in the killing of a resident, that for the police to be able to do their job, they need to have the confidence of the community and the community needs to have confidence in the police department. And that's a two-way street that needs to happen. And so my goal here is to separate the opportunity again for bias or any, any sort of malfeasance. Now, what I'll say is, the Robert White case in particular just exposed some deficiencies in our process, I think. The fact that we investigate our own is not a good thing in these cases. And the fact that there's really no explanation about why charges aren't filed. You know, Howard County sent us, the state's attorney sent a two-sentence letter saying charges were not filed, didn't explain why. So I think those things in particular in investigating how we did these exposed some deficiencies. The other thing is our state's attorney and I don't have authority to tell the state's attorney to do anything in state office, We've, even though we fund them. They voluntarily, John McCarthy, set up a relationship with the Howard County, previous Howard County state's attorney, to review these cases because he realized it was a national best practice. Having our police have an independent investigation would complement that and I think go along nicely with that effort. So to make it truly independent, you know, and as far as the collecting of the evidence, talking to witnesses, that kind of thing. It's a national best practice. It'd be first in the state. I think it'd be a model for other places. Again, the idea is we want to make sure that trust exists both ways so that the police can do their jobs and community members can feel safe. Have you talked to Tom Manger about this or, or John McCarthy? I've spoken with both of them. I've spoken with uh, several others. I've spoken with community groups, both before, during, and after the drafting and introduction of this bill. And I'm hopeful, again, I think that it can serve everybody's interest. Uh, I know change is always hard, but I think in this time where we are now in, in policing in our country and the, and the facts are the facts, we need to take different steps to make sure that community trust remains strong and that the community has faith in the police and that the police can have the trust of the community so they can do their job better and keep people safe. So I've spoken to them. They're well aware. of. I've sent them the legislation before, and I'm sure they'll have some comment at some point. How were those conversations, specifically to Manger and McCarthy? They were cordial. Uh, they were good. I, you know, I think people have been doing things one way for a long time. And so anytime you want to change things, there's questions about why or how it's going to happen or what will be the ramifications, which are all reasonable questions. But again, I think the bottom line is we want to make sure that we, our police department maintains the trust and builds on that trust with the community. And I think this will help to do that. Now, I, my guess is nearly everyone in the county saw those, that body camera footage from the officer in the Robert White shooting. Do you think he should have been charged, that officer? I'm not here to pass judgment on whether he should have been charged in the moment. I, what I will say is I think there are other issues that need to be looked into that are, I think, being looked into, such as in the administrative review, such as was the arrest or the stop lawful? You know, was he profiling Robert White when he stopped him? Did he have cause to stop him? The, a, guy, a man who was walking in his community, a walk that he did every day, and there was no call of disturbance or anything. So was that a justifiable stop? That eventually led to a series of events that led to the losing of his life. You know, the thing about use of force is if you're not, you're not there, the body camera footage showed that Mr. White had approached the officer after trying to walk away for several minutes, then they get in a tussle. At that point, you know, it's, it's difficult to call whether the use of force is justified and to second guess the officer 
in the heat of the moment when he feels like he's being attacked. But there are things before that that I think we need to look at in, in practice and policy and, and why was he stopped and was he profiled. Those are all things. Whether it li- rises to the level of criminal liability, that would have been for a grand jury to decide and for the Howard County State's Attorney didn't think it did. But my point with this bill is to say that we need to have as much information out as possible. We need to have an independent investigation and we need to have transparency in the reasoning why and ex- explanations to the public. And not everyone's going to be happy with that. That's not going to solve the anger on both sides or on the side of the person who lost a loved one, for example. But at least there'll be information out there so that people can more clearly understand why things happened the way they did. Okay. Now, put yourself into the shoes of his sergeant. Would you fire him? I think administrative discipline is something that should be on the table. Uh, If they find in their investigation, again, I haven't interviewed the officer you know, I'm a lawyer, but I haven't cross-examined him. I don't. I have no access to any of that information. Probing questions like, why did you approach Mr. White? What did you see him doing? All those things. If the investigation yield that it was not a lawful stop, then there should be administrative action taken. But again, the police haven't, I think they've just finished their investigation internally and will be hopefully announcing something soon about what the disposition of that was. But like I said, if policy wasn't followed, then there should be. If there, if it was followed, then there shouldn't be. But I, I don't have enough information to make that determination. Okay, I think with that, it's a good time to take a break. You're listening to Montgomery Talk. I'm speaking with Will Jawando, County Council Member, and I'm Doug Tallman, Senior Reporter at Montgomery Community Media. We'll be back very shortly. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back with more Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'm speaking with County Council Member Will Juwando. Another piece of legislation that um, you've introduced recently would create a Reconciliation and Remembrance Commission, and I'd, I'll let you describe that as well. What exactly is the goal, and what and what's the impetus? Yes. Yeah, so this is the whole goal here is to remember and have some reconciliation, hopefully the unfortunate uh, but very real history of racial discrimination manifested through the form of a most heinous murder called lynching. And we've had three documented, and there, there, there may be others, but three very well-documented lynchings in Montgomery County's history that were in the newspaper. And uh, some, several of them were taken out of the jail for crimes that either they didn't commit or were suspected of committing but hadn't stood trial and lynched publicly in Rockville and other places. And we've never really come to terms with that. And that's important because if we're going to have reconciliation and healing and understanding, you have to talk about what happened and why it happened. And so this resolution that we introduced earlier this week would allow us to be a partner with the Equal Justice Initiative founded by Brian Stevenson, which is in part of a national effort to remember and erect memorials to African-Americans who were lynched across the country. And if you think about it, and one of the things I said in my remarks when we introduced it is there are many, many monuments to the perpetrators and supporters of slavery and Jim Crow and lynchings, Robert E. Lee, and the list goes on. But there are not memorials to those who were the victims of these acts. And so part of this initiative would allow us to be eligible for funding to erect these monuments or markers 
where these lynchings occurred. But then also, it would establish a commission that would be staffed and run out of the Office of Human Rights in our county, where we would convene experts and historians to look into this part of our history, this, uh, you know, not spoken about, but very real part of our history here in the county related to African Americans and other communities that have been racially discriminated against, and create educational tools and opportunities for healing and discussion and cultural events so that we can all have a full understanding of our history, again, with the hopes that we can heal from it, but also never repeat it and push even further away from the vestiges of racial discrimination. So that's, that's the goal of the resolution. You have two co-sponsors on this? So Councilmember Reamer and I are the co-leads along with Councilmember Rice. And then actually when we did introduce it, there was uh, Councilmember Friedson, Katz, and I believe Albernaz also joined as co-sponsors. So that was nice to have several folks chime in. And I think that looks good for the passage of it, but we'll take it up when we do. Okay. So where are the pain points on something like this? Is it a no-brainer or is there? do you have hurdles you have to climb? You know, I think I'm hopeful that most people will recognize that this is an important thing to discuss. You know, we're at a moment in history where on the national scene you have some of the same things that were used to divide us in the past. And now in the case of immigration and and at the border and this discussion of the wall, the effort to dehumanize people and to say that they shouldn't be here and they're not worthy. I think these lessons are more important than ever to talk about now. And I'm hopeful that my colleagues, the county executive, the rest of the council will be supportive of this. I think they would be. But the real work begins not when we pass the resolution. It begins when we start digging into these real issues and and having to talk about erecting these monuments and having educational programming. Because we've, in a lot of senses, we've glossed over this history for so long. A lot of people don't want to go back and talk about it, but it's critical that we do. And so I think to the extent that there's any pushback, I think it'll be when we actually start doing the work. I'd like to see integration in the MCPS curriculum, which would be a school board decision. But I think people need to know our history here and know what happened. The movement for human and civil rights didn't just start and end with Martin Luther King. As great as he was, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, there were many, many people that were involved in that struggle and still are involved in it. So, you know, and one of the things I did was, which I'd like to do again, I think it's important, the names of the three men who were lynched, George W. Peck, John Diggs and Sidney Randolph are names that probably have not been heard here in Montgomery County too often, but they are uh, important names, and I hope that at the end of this process, they, along with others, will be known more. It doesn't sound like this legislation has anything to do with the, the graves under the HOC building in Bethesda, but how is the council going to deal with that issue? Well, it's it's an ongoing issue. You know, uh, there are across the country, and we're no exception, there are historically African-American communities that were no longer there, that were forcibly removed or redlined. And in the case of this cemetery that I think most people agree there there is a grave there. I think memorialization of sites like that are important as well. And I think we need to work with the descendant community. We need to work with the church that's located nearby. We need to work with our county agencies, with HOC and Park and Planning, which owns a portion of the lot as well, to properly memorialize the souls that are there and use that as a learning tool. There's a ton of details of what does that mean and what does that look like, but I'm committed to finding a way and working with all parties to try to find a way to do that. The advocates for memorializing those graves, four of them were arrested about three or four weeks ago, and yet it seems as though it's going to have to land in the council's lap at some point, even though it's, it's before the HOC right now. So how is the council going to handle something like this? Well, I think we have to bring all the partners together. What I've asked is I've asked Park and Planning to give me an assessment of what they think is possible. I've asked HOC to do the same. I've asked the advocates to tell me what they think they would like to see happen. And, 
you know, I think collectively we're going to have to come to some agreement, you know, about what makes the most sense and what's most feasible. And I'm open to playing a role in that. I think other colleagues on the council are open to playing a role on that. But I don't want to prejudge what that means. I can say I think there is consensus that there needs to be some level of memorialization. Now, what that is, we'll have to see. I think the community, the advocates, certain advocates may want something like a museum, as mentioned, that that might not be feasible. I don't know. We'll have to see. But I'm willing to, I want to get in the conversation with both sides, find out what's possible, and then see where we can go from there. Okay. And you've met with the advocates? I have, yes, several times. And they've met, they've met with me. <laughs> okay. And how was that conversation? No, it was good. I mean, look, I've, I've spoken on this before. Look, there's grave injustices were done to both indigenous peoples in this country and then African-Americans and many other groups. And that's a part of our history. And it's a, it's a stain on the moral fabric and character of our nation and one that we are still dealing with the after effects of the legacy of racial bigotry and discrimination. And so we shouldn't shy away from addressing those issues. It's, it's, it's connected to today. You know, communities were forcibly removed and disrespected and killed and lynched and all these things. And there's the reason today why some of those same communities have the worst indicators in health and education and housing and because the government and officials and people before our time played a role in that. And so similarly, we have a role, those of us who are entrusted with the public's trust to be elected and to direct resources and make decisions, we similarly should be looking at those things in ways to correct those sins of the past. Now, that's going to mean different things in different times, and but I think we should all start from the point that those things happened and we need to address them. And that's where I come from on this, and, and I would urge the rest of my colleagues to approach it that way. And I think if we do, we can come up to some agreement about what is the proper way to memorialize. I believe the advocates would say the HOC isn't interested in negotiating with them or even talking with them. Well, you know, look, I don't know about how I wasn't there when the arrest happened. I, I know they've had some testy meetings. My hope coming on the council with fresh eyes is to say, hey, let, OK, let's hit the reset button and let's see what we can do now. And then I'd like to end this podcast on an interesting side note to your inauguration. While everybody was dressed in their coats and ties, and of course it was mostly coats and ties on the, on the because it's all men mostly, except for except for our leader, except for Councilor your leader, Navarro. you were dressed in an akbata. Very good, yeah, akbata. And explain why. Yeah, well, and I, I'll first I'll say what it is, and I'll tell sure. you why. You know, mm -hmm. an akbata is a uh, traditional West African formal form of dress that I wore for a couple of reasons. One, my uh, father is from Lagos, Nigeria, and from the Yoruba tribe, which is one of the three major tribes in Nigeria. And if he were there, he passed away last year. If he were there, he would have been wearing that because of the occasion. So I wanted to honor him and honor his presence and, and role in my life. But I also wanted to honor the more than one-third of residents of Montgomery County who were born in another country, and almost 45% of residents, if you add their children like me, who are the first generation to be in this country, and let them know that this government, this county, this state, this country is a place where they have a seat at the table and that their voices matter as well. And I think that was an important step for me personally, but also for the county, you know, as, as we continue to diversify. And so, and I've heard from many people that it impacted them. I didn't realize it was going to at the time, but it's an honor to have been able to do it. It's an impressive image to see, you know, coat and tie, coat and tie, coat and tie, coat and tie. I think even Miss Navarro was wearing a pantsuit and you in your traditional garb. It was a, uh, a remarkable image. The changes in Montgomery County were personified in that one image. 
Yeah, well, I, I, you know, it's funny. I've looked back at it. I have a picture picture of it up in my office, and it does kind of stand out. <laughs> and um, and my understanding is I'm the first, you know, son of an African elected. Uh, I represent the whole county. I'm only the second black person elected countywide after Ike Leggett, and so that none of that is lost on me. But I represent the whole county, and I think that's the, what one of the great things about our county is that we're so diverse, and we have so many different people and ethnicities and races and ages, and but we really have an opportunity to come together and create a great community. And, and so, uh, and tomorrow it's funny enough that, uh, I'm going to have the honor of having my Agbada, I'm donating it to Montgomery history, which is the, uh, entity that curates the history of this County. So it can be in perpetuity and people can learn about what it means and what it meant and why I wore it and the culture and all that. So I think that's pretty cool too. Well, thank you very much. So uh, I think now is the time to wrap this up. Thank you, Mr. Juwanda, for stopping by. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today was Ali Potter, and we hope to hear you next time when we're talking about Montgomery on Montgomery Talk. Thanks for having me.